0: We are in Mark, and we're continuing verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and today, Jesus faces the Sanhedrin, and we're going to read Mark 14, verse 53. And it reads like this, it says, And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council saw testimony against Jesus to put him to death but found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered, Nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Father in heaven, we pray for understanding. We pray, Lord that you would speak so clearly as we see our Savior on trial, that we would just keep reminding ourselves that he went through this, he endured all of this for us. Father, with whatever insult the world has rendered this week, or whatever challenges that we face, that we've meditated on, and that have pained us, We pray, Lord, that we would take it personally, your love, on display to sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. (laughs) No one knows the exact origin of the phrase, tell it to the judge. We assume it started amongst the police, maybe in a scenario like this. Tom is arrested for stealing a television. As the handcuffs are placed on him, he looks to the police officer and he says, It wasn't me. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I swear, it wasn't me. The police officer coldly looks at him and he says, Tell it to the judge. One, the police officer might not necessarily believe him. Two, the police officer is saying it doesn't really matter what you tell me because you're going to answer to him. You're going to answer to the judge. Now, ultimately, we plead our case before the Almighty. A judge. In essence, when we think of a judge, it's someone in a position of authority to evaluate the actions of another. So a judge is someone who's been placed in authority to evaluate the actions of another. Now, here's the thing. In our society, do you think that it's fair to say that a lot of people have placed themselves in positions that are really in no position to evaluate somebody else's actions? Let me give you an example. It's football season. How many of you have seen the armchair quarterbacks on Facebook? All right. Oh man, you need to fire this you need to fire the coach for making that decision. Or, you know, get that player off the team. And so we're sitting there and we're making the judgments uh right on our couch with a bag of potato chips and and, and a coke in our hand. All right? And we're really in no position to judge. There are all sorts of experts, be they religious, scientific, or teenagers on climate change. There are all sorts of experts. People that are in no position there that are um, putting themselves in a position to evaluate the actions of another. Now perhaps you've had this done to you personally. Somebody is, somebody in here is probably saying, well you know what I felt judged at points in my life, right? You're in church. Hello. Now, okay. Somebody here said, okay, you know what I feel like I've been judged at different points in my life. And what I mean is this is that you could be out with friends. Alright, and you could be eating, and while you're out with your friends eating, suddenly you feel a pair of eyes on you. And that pair of eyes on you, they then take a look and they say, you know what, you really shouldn't be eating that. You really shouldn't be eating that. Uh, the same person you know lives off of Twinkies, Chicken Nuggets, Pop Tarts, and Coca-Cola. And yet they're telling you how to diet? You're really in no position. Or perhaps you're driving and the person in the seat next to you is telling you how to drive. Yet you've driven with them. You know their driving record. You know that they, they don't even have a license, and they're telling you how you should be driving. And so they're not necessarily in a position. What if Somebody's speaking about your financial position. They just filed Chapter 11, and they're telling you how you should and how you shouldn't spend your money when they're really not in a position. Somebody that is drunk telling an alcoholic how to get sober. I think you should do it like this. Well, they're not really in a position to tell you at that point. Now, this is important because when we think of the church, what used to be the most popular verse was John 3.16. You know it. Your kids know it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And again, it is the pastor's nightmare to quote that verse and to forget it up here. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so that used to be the most popular verse quoted in the church, but now it seems to me that the most popular verse quoted in the church is Matthew 7 1, which says, Judge not lest ye be judged. And what we're saying is this is that, okay, when somebody says, Judge not, lest ye be judged, especially within the walls of the church, it's usually because. Somebody is calling you out on something that you probably shouldn't be doing, and now we get offended and we say, well, you're judging me, and you shouldn't judge me because the Bible says it like this, judge not lest ye be judged. Listen, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't bring sin to someone's attention, it just means that we don't condemn them. Our job is not to condemn. Now listen to this, because this is pretty imperative. When we look at Scripture, when Jesus says that, He's addressing a mindset of people that are ignoring their own sin, but seeking to criticize others and not paying attention to what's happening in their own lives. It's a hypocritical mindset. Condemnation is not my job. Now, even Jesus himself said this. He said that he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, what he did will judge the world. We know that. The world will be judged based off of what they believe happened 2,000 years ago on that cross. But Jesus said he came to save the world. And yet sometimes, like the religious authorities he was addressing, sometimes what we do is we put ourselves in a position to judge. Again, we will talk about the difference between accountability in the church, which is necessary, and condemnation within the walls of the church. But even Jesus in John 8, when a woman that was caught in adultery and the very act was brought before him, Jesus is the one that could have judged her, right? And yet it was the religious leaders who said that she should be stoned. Do you remember what Jesus said? Let he who has no sin amongst you cast the first one. The one that was truly in the position to judge said, listen, go and sin no more to the lady. But by the very words that he spoke, The others stood condemned, and they walked away. Now again, please understand, Jesus' teaching here, all right? This does not mean that anything goes within the walls of the church. There can be accountability. There should be accountability. There must be accountability. We see it through Scripture. Most of the letters that are written by Paul, or Peter, or John, they're addressing things that are happening within the walls of the church for accountability's purpose, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But in our passage today, what we're going to see is that Jesus is arrested, brought before the chief priest and the high priest and the leaders to be judged. Now, as Christians today, we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We're called to be his representatives, his ambassadors. So do you think that we might be judged? See, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to take a look at a few important lessons today that I pray resonate. Seven quick lessons today that we're going to take a look at as we um, break this passage back down, starting at verse 53. It says, and they led Jesus away to the high priest. This is Mark 14, verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Stop right there. All the people who claimed to represent God were there. The people that were claiming to be um, God's spokespeople, they were gathered and they were ready to judge Jesus. Who were these men that were gathered? These were the men that had the most to lose if Jesus was right. If Jesus was really God, these people had a lot to lose. Why? Because here's Jesus feeding the multitudes. Here's Jesus raising the dead. And here's Jesus walking on water, and he's got a reputation. As he has come into town, they have shouted, Hosanna, save us. They've declared him a king, pretty much. And yet here's these religious representatives, and they have nothing to do with them. He has nothing to do with them. Which means this. means if he's right, they're wrong. And there's something in that for us, too. That's when somebody genuinely comes to Christ, when we realize God's right we're wrong, when we realize that we're sinners. There's a lot at stake if the religious leaders are wrong. It's their power. It's their position. It's their legacy that's at stake if they're wrong. And yet what we see with Jesus is this, is that he's one that humbled himself to go to a cross. For us to get to that cross, what do we have to do? We have to humble ourselves. Why don't we humble ourselves? Because I might have to admit that some of the choices I've made were not the right ones. And it takes great humility for a man or a woman to go to the cross and say, I'm a sinner. I've gotten it wrong. I need a Savior. The religious leaders are not there. And because they're not there, if he's right and they're wrong, then their agenda becomes to crush him. And so this is the first observation of seven today. What we see in this passage, as Jesus is brought to this assembly of men to be judged, this is our first observation, and that is that we will see that man puts God on trial. It even sounds ludicrous when I say it, right? It sounds ridiculous. That man, who's, who's man to put God on trial? Think about this. Their positions, their priesthood, their nation, their temple, their law. It's not even possible without this God. But also remember this, that they don't even have, without this God, they wouldn't have brains to think. They wouldn't have ears to hear, eyes to see, mouths to speak, hearts to beat, lungs to breathe. Without this God, they wouldn't have the fingers to point if not for him. And rather than giving glory to God, what they do is they say, okay, we're going to put you on trial now, Jesus. And we would take a look and we'd say, you know what? I would never do that, Pastor John. There's, you know, Where's the application for us in here? As we're the church and we're sitting here and we're looking at this passage, well, what kind of an application might we find as we're looking at this? Well, think about it for a second. We're being told this story of people that put Jesus on trial. We're reading it in the Word, and according to Hebrews 4.12, it says this, that the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joint and the marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It judges the thoughts and actions of man, the Word of God. So as we see what they do, the application that we can find, I think it's pretty simple. So you don't have the physical person of Jesus Christ in front of you. Have you put God on trial? I think we have. Let me save you from answering that for yourself. The answer is yes. We have. We do. I have a plan for my life. I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be a police officer. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be all of these things. That's my plan for my life. But I don't consult God about it. And every time something doesn't go the way that I hope it goes, then it's a wrench being thrown into my plan. Now I get upset. Who am I blaming? Well, the world, really. But when I'm blaming the world, who am I really blaming? God. When I never went to Him in the first place. Have there been things in your life that have happened? Maybe just on a daily basis. All right, you've got a plan for this day. All right, I'm going to wake up at 6 o'clock. I'm going to eat breakfast. I'm going to work out. I'm going to go to work. And all of a sudden, before you can even open up your eyes, you get a text. Well, listen, this person's sick, and we're going to need you to come in. And now your plan's changing, and you're saying, come on! And we're getting really frustrated because I had a plan for this day. God's saying, I have one too. Are you going to trust mine? Or you're going to trust yours. And if this day doesn't go exactly how you planned out, is there enough room for my Holy Spirit to guide you and to lead you? But God, this was my plan. I'll never forget when they explained to us the challenges that Hannah was going to have. When we sat with the doctor and they just sat down and they said, you know what? Well, this is these are some of the challenges that you can expect. All I'm doing is I'm sitting there thinking, well, this isn't right. I'm God's spokesperson. I'm God's pastor. Things should be different. Should they, John? You don't agree with my decisions? Well, wait a minute. If you don't agree with my decisions, then aren't you kind of saying that maybe you should be running things? And if I should be running things, then God gently takes me aside with a two-by-four And he says, okay, (laughs) is your checkbook even balanced? And you're going to tell me how to run the rest of the world? Am I going to be taking counsel from you, John? You can't even keep your your house clean. You can't keep your room clean. Come on, man. Are you going to tell me how I should be running things? Because here's what I found when, when I was really taking this apart and meditating about all the ways that we judge God. What I thought about was this is that I develop a plan for my life, the person that I want to be with, the job that I want to go for, and and all these things, and then when they don't work out, I get upset with him. When I wasn't trusting him in the first place. And now, as I dig myself deeper in the hole, then I'm still relying on my own understanding because I'm dictating to him how he should fix it. And at some point, As a friend of mine once said, you have to put the shovel down. Think of it like this. If you've ever put something together and didn't read the directions and it didn't work, then you're just like your pastor. All right? There are many times that I've put something together, okay, and the thing is not working the way that it should. Well, now I get upset. I just bought this. I spent good money on this. The first thing I do is I call the manufacturer. And I say, well, listen, your product isn't working. And they say, well, did you read the directions? And I'm like, well, you know, I read most of them. Did you read page 13 that says that if you put this part here, then it's going to do this? No, I didn't, I didn't see that part. Thank you. All right, so now I read that part. Uh, Sir, is it working? Yes, it is. Thank you. See, I hadn't read the directions, and I was blaming the manufacturer when I never read how they told me to do it. There might be an application for us in there. When we see circumstances unfolding in our life and we say, well, God isn't there. God doesn't care. Of course God cares. He has to go no further than the cross to prove it. The challenge is if we submitted to the cross and have we ourselves gone there or are we so busy putting God on trial for the decisions that we made? I don't like the fact that it worked out like this. Well, who made that decision to put you there? A lot of the times, I did. Sometimes it's because we're in a fallen world, but a lot of the times, I put myself in that position. Now, there's a movie that came out a few years ago called Bruce Almighty. Some of you are familiar with it. The story, it's Bruce Nolan, Jim Carrey's character. His career in TV has been stalled for a while and when he's passed over for a coveted anchorman position, he loses it, complaining that God is treating him poorly. Soon after, God actually contacts Bruce and offers him all his powers if he thinks he can do a better job. Bruce accepts and goes on a spree, using his newfound abilities for selfish personal use until he realizes that the prayers of the world are going unanswered. Oh, I thought I could do it better, but how many times have we been I don't know, Fernando Almighty, or John Almighty, or Billy Almighty, or Matthias Almighty, or fill your name in the blank. I am not. I just picked those names random because that's who I'm looking at at that time. Or Bob Almighty. Uh, so, how many times have we done this? It's John Almighty. Listen, you don't want John Almighty in control of your life. Amen? <laughs> Love me less. Okay, you don't want in control of your life. All right? But yet, we put God on trial. Let's read on verse 54. It says, But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. So Peter, who, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, drew his sword, cut off Malchus' ear, Jesus says, stay your sword, son. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. He heals Malchus. Jesus does. Peter flees with everybody else like he said he wouldn't do. But now Peter, he's warming himself with the servants of the high priest. Now let me ask you something. Even as I read that, are you judging Peter? Do you find yourself judging Peter? Like, man, I mean, Peter actually walked on the water. He, he was one of the three that was with Jesus when he performed a resurrection. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you find yourself judging Peter? Because if you do, then you'll get the second point really clearly. See, just like man puts God on trial, when you associate, this is the second observation, when any man identifies himself with God, he will be put on trial. You'll be put on trial for identifying with him. Now, what we'll see with Peter is he's going to be at the fire, and somebody's going to say to him, as he's warming himself with the servants of the high priest, we're going to study this next week, somebody's going to come up to him, and they're going to say, weren't you walking with Jesus? Not me. No, no, no. Not me. And now, what's happening is, Peter, because he walked with Jesus, he's being called out. Any man who identifies himself with God will be put on trial. Christians, you are being watched. Good, bad, right, or wrong, like it or not, we are living in the day and age of Alexa. All right? Siri. We're living in a day and age where there are cameras all over the place. All right? And so you are under scrutiny. Some of you really don't like that. I don't like the fact that if I have this Alexa contraption in my house, she might be listening to the, the government, might be listening in on the conversations that I'm having. Some of you, even as Christians, listen. You don't want to be told. You know what? This. What you're doing isn't necessarily consistent with the faith you proclaim, because now we begin to get a little uncomfortable. That's why I love this church. Let's get uncomfortable together, understanding that we are being watched. All right. I wrote it like this: Is that with being a Christian and the decision to accept Christ as your Savior, you've accepted the CPS. It's what we call the comprehensive scrutiny package. All right? The comprehensive scrutiny package means that all eyes are on you. There are two kinds of people that are watching you. One, the people that know Jesus. And two, the people that don't know Jesus. The people that want you to succeed, and then the people that are waiting for you to fail. And you're like, Pastor John, doesn't that pretty much doesn't that cover everybody? That's the point. So let me ask you, if you're being judged, if you're being scrutinized, called out, who would you rather it be by? The Christian? Don't answer this. The Christian or the non-Christian? See, I don't know about some of you, but sometimes the way we call people out as the church can be just as harsh as the world. That's why Jesus was calling out the religious leaders. Because before we tell them of their need for a Savior, what we'll do is we'll judge their morality. And so, it's getting quiet in here. That's fine. All right? Let's, 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 let's get loud. All right. Uh, as we look at this, we see that we have a tendency before we go to them. And so, what happens is, is that any person that identifies himself with Jesus, you're being watched. Now, some people are really looking at your life saying, okay, well, John's a Christian. How's he going to handle this adversity that he's going through? And they're looking because they do want you to succeed. They want to believe that there's something better than whatever it is that they've pressed on to. But some are sitting there and they're looking to justify their own lifestyle and they're waiting for you to fail. Because if you fail, then they can go on with things and they don't have to make any changes for the choices that they've made. And this is where we get into a brief discussion about accountability within the walls of the church. Accountability is super important. It's important for your relationship with God. It's important for the integrity of the church. Accountability is huge. Because we start breaking into a conversation that says, listen, if you see me, John, making decisions that are not consistent with the faith I proclaim, I want you to call me out on it. Because what's important to me is my relationship with God. And I don't care if it stings, Pastor. Just please, if you see something that's inconsistent in my life, I want you to bring it to me. Go ahead, hit me. Alright? And it's like that scene that you sometimes see in the movie where they say, okay, I want you to slap me. Slap me. And then the person looks and they finally say, okay, and then they punch him in the stomach. You know? <laughs> and then it's like, oh, that's not exactly what I had in mind. That's what accountability sometimes feels like. Alright? but we want accountability because we are under scrutiny because for a Christian, the adversity is the opportunity. If we could reframe things, the adversity is the opportunity for us to shine because that's what the world needs to see. The world doesn't need to see our perfect lives. They need to see us responding more Christ-like when life is far from perfect because for many of us, life right now is far from perfect. And so we come to one another, saying, okay, I want accountability. But do you think that it's fair to say that everybody wants accountability until they get it? They want accountability until it's brought to your front doorstep. And so what might you look for in somebody that is going to look at your life and be part of your life, that's going to do life with you? Here are three things that you might want to look for in accountability, partner. One, they love Jesus more than they love you, just like I tell you all with relationships. Number one is that they love Jesus more than they love you. Number two, they themselves want accountability. Please understand what I'm saying. They don't just say they want accountability. They want accountability. When you bring something to them, they're like, okay, all right. It doesn't mean they won't struggle with it a little bit, but they themselves want accountability. Number three, they value your relationship with God over their relationship with you. Fair? They value your relationship with God over their relationship with you. In other words, they know that what they're about to bring you to hold you accountable might be something that causes a little bit of a rift in your relationship with them. And they say, you know what? I don't care because my friendship with them is not as important as their relationship with God. And so accountability is very, very important. Because again, if we Get this right. If we understand the gospel right, and we're not chained by the things of this world, then what I want is people saying, you know what, that's a chain on you. That's a chain, and that needs to be broken. That's a stronghold in your life, and that needs to be dealt with. See, for believers, knowing that we're under scrutiny, we could sit there and we go, you know what, I don't like that part of the Christian life. I don't like the fact that people are watching me. Guess what? That's the greatest opportunity through your adversity. I did not like watching my mother-in-law get into an accident the other night over here. Praise God she's okay. But here's what I loved. I loved seeing the church family. I loved seeing somebody drive by just to make sure we were okay. I loved seeing another brother out there just uh, supporting and, and, and directing traffic. I loved seeing that. I loved seeing Mary Lou as she was, you know, going through it herself, shining for Jesus through the adversity because we're always being watched. We're called to be what the Bible calls a witness. That word witness is really important, what we're called to be, all right? In Acts 1.8, when Jesus is telling them to go out and be the church, he's telling them, he's saying, listen, here's what we're going to do. In Acts 1.8, you don't have to turn there, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and the end of the earth. Witnesses. What is a witness? In the original language, it's kind of like the word martyr. And that's not just somebody that's going to go out and tell somebody about Jesus. That's somebody that's really living it and living it to the point where what happens is it's like the world is able to see that no matter what the consequences are, you're shining for him. That's your resolve. That's a witness. How many of you have reduced the idea of being a witness saying, well, I was at work the other day, and uh, this person cut me off, and I blew my witness? How many of you have done that? Oh, I blew my witness today. All right. Being a witness is much more comprehensive than that. Being a witness means, hey, listen, this is what I believe. I want the world to see it. It doesn't mean that everything that you're going to you're sometimes going to blow your witness, but it doesn't mean you're always going to get everything perfect. It just means that when people look at your life, well, you're not defined by the moments you blow it. You're defined by the fact that you love Jesus and you're resolved to shining for Him, and that's what they see more often when you're going through it. But we're called to be witnesses. Now, if we're called to be witnesses, okay, then, uh, we just saw Peter under scrutiny. Let's read verses 55 through 58. Because this is kind of like a matter of preparing the witnesses, knowing what we're going to be going through as we watch Jesus endure this. Now the chief priests and all the council saw testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. Okay, so let's prepare the witness now. Let's prepare the witness by seeing what Jesus is going through, by seeing how the religious leaders are going to attack this. And we see right in verse 55, the chief priests and all the council saw testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Are they looking for a fair trial? Are they looking to gather evidence so that they can make a fair decision? No, that's not what it's saying. All right, it's saying that they're looking specifically for evidence so that they can put him to death. And this is the third observation we make off of our passage today. And that is this, is we're preparing the witnesses now that the world desires to build a case against you. The world desires to build a case against you. Remember what we've said in here countless times. We have two opposing forces. We have the world system, devised by Satan to appeal to the flesh. Then we have the things of heaven, appealed to by God, and the things of the Spirit. And these things are always at war with one another. And they're never, they're never compatible. Here, the religious leaders have said, you know what? We're going to find evidence, no matter what the cost, to put him to death. Just know this. The world system, the world is building its case against you. That's what, that's the courtroom that you're walking into when you walk out of the church, when you walk into the workplace, wherever it is that you're going. They're seeking testimony to put him to death. Listen, these men have established themselves by the law. They've been established by the law. The law was not meant to establish man. What was the law meant to do? According to the book of Galatians, the law was meant to bring a man to the understanding that man needs a savior. But now what they're going to do is they're going to twist and turn the law in order to find God guilty. This is the first thing we need to understand as God is preparing our witnesses through the word. Here's number four. Four out of seven. Anything you do or say. Some of you have heard this. <laughs> Anything you do or say can and will be used against you in a court of law. How many have ever heard that? Okay, some of you have heard. So listen. Listen. <laughs> some of you have heard that where are like, yeah, Pastor John, I've heard that because I watch Law and Order, I watch CSI some of you have heard that because it's actually been said to you in context, alright anything you say or do can and will be used against you in a court of law they're going to take what Jesus has said here about the destroying the temple, made with hands and rebuilding the temple they're going to take that out of context and they're going to use it literally to put him on a cross Because anything you say and do can and will be used against you. Basically, that point, we could say it in a simpler way, don't give them ammunition. All right? Listen, there's so many people, and you perhaps know them, so many people that I've heard that have said, well, you know, you keep throwing the past in my face, and the Bible says this. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed. The old all things have been made new. Don't throw my past in my face. Well, then stop acting like the same bonehead you were acting before you knew Jesus. If you keep making the same decisions, don't keep saying that you're a new creation. The only difference is now you're saying you're a new creation, and now I'm doing it in the name of Christ, because now I'm throwing his name out there, and when I throw his name out there, that should silence you. No. You say that you're a new creation in Christ, but you keep doing the same thing that you were doing. Don't Give the world ammunition, because it's looking for it. Why is the world looking for ammunition? Because if they can tear you down, then they can justify their own lifestyle. Sometimes someone will tear you down so that they can exalt themselves. Sometimes somebody's tearing you down just so they can hurt you. Unfortunately, this is the world that we live in. Now listen, there's a flip side to this about not giving people ammo. Because we're sinners, if somebody's looking for you to do something wrong, they're going to find it. They're going to find it. They're going to be able to look at your life. Maybe it'll be an old Facebook post, or maybe it'll be a decision that you made in high school, or a picture that somebody took that is somewhat incriminating. This is why I love being a pastor, but I would never be a politician. Because they want to go back years, decades ago, and well they said this when they were back in in, in like a, a, a frat house party and you know now because of that their whole career is like shot all right. If people can listen, if the enemy can ruin your reputation, if you can find the ammo. So what we don't want to do is give him reason, give an open door. That's point number four. Anything you say, can and will be used against you in a court of law. But here's what else we see. It's number five. Things you never did or said will also be used against you in a court of law. The Bible seems to indicate, Jesus says at point blank, that you will be falsely accused if you walk with me. You may be falsely accused of doing something or saying something. Here's the thing. With Jesus, they looked in his life, and they couldn't find anything. Some of you here, that wouldn't be said. But for Jesus, they looked at his life, they couldn't find anything, and so what they had to do was they had to manufacture it. What they were doing, basically, was they were planting evidence. They had to plant evidence for Jesus. Now, back in Genesis 39, we're not going to go there for time's sake, there's a story of a young man named Joseph. And what Joseph did, he did before the Lord.
1: And because of that,
0: every situation he found himself in, uh, Joseph was, he had God's hand on his life. And you saw blessing and favor follow Joseph wherever he went. But one day, as he's working for his Egyptian master, Potiphar, well, Potiphar's wife approaches Joseph, and a lot of you know the story, The wife approaches Joseph with longing eyes, and Joseph says no. He says no. He says no, and eventually Potiphar's wife corners him alone in the house. Joseph says, I can't do this because of my God and my loyalty to my master, and he runs out. He does the right thing, and we would expect that because he does the right thing that he'll have the right outcome, the blessed outcome. But what happens is this. He gets falsely accused. And we take a look at the story, and we go, that's not fair for Joseph to be falsely accused for doing the right thing. And we'd say, God, I I don't agree with that judgment call. And God would say, your whole faith is built off of that judgment call. When I sent the only perfect one to go to a cross and to do it. So that's point five. All right. Things that you never did or said will also be used against you in a court of law. That's all the bad news. Now, here's the good news, is that Jesus is going to show us exactly how to deal with it. Take a look back at our passage at Mark 14. Now it's verse 60. So after all the witnesses have come, and this has been a nightmare, really, because their their witnesses don't agree, but they're going to keep proceeding anyway. Verse 60 says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But he kept silent, and he answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus answered, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Stop right there. And this is going to be our sixth observation. Our advocate has given us everything. We need to be good witnesses. Our advocate, Jesus, who the book of Hebrews says intercedes for us day and night before the throne of God, our advocate has given us everything that we need to be effective witnesses. The first thing that we see is that he sets the example by his action. The first thing that he does is he says nothing. How many of you would benefit in your life right now by being in some altercations and some confrontations that you've been in, how many of you would benefit to have the restraint of the Holy Spirit to keep your mouth? Anybody. Alright? Some of us would benefit from that. We're watching Jesus be silent because what we learn from silence is that one, He doesn't answer to them. He doesn't have to answer to them. There are also moments of silence where what we indicate is that we're just commun that we're trusting our higher authority. Jesus is our authority. So if the world brings false accusations against me, I don't have to defend myself against them. This is so important. We can learn a lot from silence. We need to learn to be silent sometimes. There's an old adage, and I don't know where this one comes from either. Better to keep your mouth shut. And let everyone think that you're ignorant better than to open it up and remove all doubt. How many of you have heard that? All right. Even in your design. The way that God designed you, you have two ears, you have one mouth. There is a reason for this. And so the first thing we do is we learn from Jesus' example of being silent. But then they question him again. The high priest says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Then Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now Jesus responds to him. There is a time to be silent. There is a time to respond. How do you know it? Your own relationship with God, and nobody can tell you. It's your own relationship with him. He, Jesus sets the example that there are times to say something. Peter is the one. Peter is like the poster child through this of opening up his mouth and perhaps he'd have been better to just go, right? right? But with Jesus, what we see is that what he says at the perfect time, it's the perfect response. These men who he's standing before will never have a reason to say, well, we didn't know. Because right here, Jesus tells them point blank, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Because ultimately, the men that he's answering to right now will answer to him. And that's a big deal. For the Bible tells us in Romans 14, for every man will give an account of himself before God. So how should we respond? Well, Jesus shows us by the example. But let me ask you something. When you see Jesus in his responses, you've watched him conduct himself. Is it consistent with what he taught them? It better be. He's Jesus, he's God. Our words have to match our actions. What he's doing matches what he taught them. It was Matthew 5, and I just want to read this because as far as Christian conduct, is, as far as how we should act overall as witnesses, Matthew 5, there's perhaps no better passage in the Bible that really lays it out clearly. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, witnesses, listen to this, witnesses. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to what he says in verse 11. Check this out. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Is Jesus preparing them for what's going to happen if we're effective witnesses? He's sitting there. He's telling them point blank what's going to happen. He himself is enduring it. He says, listen, when they persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, do you see what Jesus has done here? He's not only taught them, but now he's living the example out as he's being falsely accused before them. And you're saying, Well, you know what? I feel like I'm being falsely accused right now for trying to be Jesus in the world. And Jesus is saying, I know that's going to happen to you. I knew it was going to happen to you. But here's what else I've given you. I not only gave you the example, I not only gave you the teaching, but because I died, was resurrected, now I've given you the Holy Spirit inside of you. So you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you, that same power. You've got the Word of God in front of you. We have everything we need to be effective witnesses. We have the recollection of the example that Jesus set for us, so that when we are put on trial, We are effective witnesses to God. We who have so often in our lives put God on trial, now we can be truly effective witnesses and that we have the Word, and that we have the Spirit, and that we have the example of Christ. Here's what else we have. Look to your right. Look to your left. Look in back of you. We're going to do the electric slide now. (laughs) Here's what you've got. You've got to the back, to the front, you've got the church. The church of Jesus Christ. When you're struggling. Because sometimes when my witness is struggling, I've got one of you right there going, Peach, hey? Peach, come on, dude. Come on, man. All right? We've got one another. We've got the Word, we've got the Spirit, we've got the example, and we've got the church. And these are all things that God gave us so that we might be more effective witnesses. But we need to draw upon those things that God has placed in our life that we might be so. Last observation, it's number 7 of 7, and that is, let's go back to Mark 14. I want to read this first, and and then we'll get the last point. says, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him, and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. We can read that. But I will tell you this. When I saw the Passion of the Christ, it took my understanding of that moment to a different level. When I actually saw the visual on it, right now I can—I'm pic- pretty good at picturing things in my head, but when I saw that movie and I saw what they did depicted on screen, it took it to a whole other level. Watching them sitting there condemning Jesus. Our last observation. What the world will condemn, heaven will reward. We saw that in Matthew, right? We did see that in Matthew. Great will your reward be. Rejoice exceedingly with exceeding joy. I mean, it has some just funky language in there that says rejoice exceedingly because great is your reward. How many of you have thought to yourself, you know what, I really, because in the early church, if you look at the early church fathers, some of these guys were like, man, I want my persecution. When's my persecution coming? That's not the mindset today. We don't like it when somebody tells us that we can't open up a Bible in Popeyes. All right? We don't like that. We don't like it when somebody says, well, you know what, You, you can't wear a cross here. You can't keep your Bible on your desk. We don't like that. We consider that persecution. These people were rejoicing at persecution. They're saying, bring it. Bring it. Bring it. I'm going to be put to death? Well, yeah, unless, unless you do this. No, 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 no. Put me to death, please. If you read some of these stories, they're mind-blowing. Somewhat incomprehensible to our mindset in America in 2020. And yet Jesus stands before them condemned. And the beating begins. This is really important. Because as a church today, It sometimes seems like we're going right along with what the world is doing. And maybe we don't see it too often, but it kind of seems that the things that the world is celebrating, the church begins to utilize. And we start going down a slippery slope because there are actual things that we're we're not necessarily being in the world now we're starting to cross the line and we're starting to be of the world. See, when the church no longer feels like the body of Christ, when it does begin to seem more like a movie theater or more like a Broadway show, when the church starts to seem like that, then what's going to happen is this. When the smoke goes away and the lights Come down, and the show isn't as funny anymore, and the music ends. All that will be left is the heart of worship. One of the things that is kind of cool about this little room that God placed us in, I can't even dim the lights if I want to. The lights are on autopilot, you know what I mean? We can't even do that. Somebody comes here, they're going to have to come for the Word of God. We want to make sure that when they come here, that we understand that it's the love of God, it's the word of God, it's the accountability amongst God's people, it's the beautiful beautiful fellowship that he provides. But these are the things, because we know that when when we stand in judgment, a lot of the things that the world thought, well, we did this, we did this, we did this, we're going to stand and be accountable for what we did with what he gave us and the motive of the human heart. One writer, um, and we'll close with this story. We mentioned the story before, um, even a few weeks ago. But there is another part of the story that's just as important. Um, I read to you from Max Lucado. A gesture of forgiveness, a moment of kindness. The first is stirring hearts, the second is stirring controversy. Amber Geiger had just been convicted of murdering Botham Jean. She shot him on the evening of September 6, 2018. He was in his apartment. She was ending a shift on the Dallas police force. He was eating ice cream, sitting on his couch. She thought he was an intruder in her apartment, she said, and she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Brant Jean, and this is the part that we're familiar with, we talked about, the victim's brother, he was given an opportunity to address Geiger in the court. This moment was a tinderbox. Brant, however, refused to light the match. He did not wish any ill will upon Geiger. To the contrary, he wished nothing but the best and asked the presiding judge a stunning question. Holding back tears, the 18-year-old asked the judge, I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please? The judge paused and said yes. Sobs could be heard in the courtroom as witnesses and the, the accused embraced. Good for Brandt. He set us an example. Forgiveness does not downplay the offense, excuse the misdeed, nor does it condone it. Forgiveness is simply the act of changing your attitude towards the offender. It was moving, and it reminded us that while justice matters, forgiveness heals. He modeled the power of forgiveness, but this is the part that was different. The judge then displayed the power of kindness. Tammy Kemp left the bench to retrieve one of her personal Bibles, then handed it to Geiger. This is your job for the next month, she said. It says right here, John 3.16, and this is where you start. Then the judge quoted the verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Who saw that coming? We expect the government officials to remain detached, to keep faith at arm's length, and yet here in the middle of the courtroom we saw a refreshing, affirming act of humanity. We see a person treating another person like, well, like a person. The judge is under fire for her kindness. A national atheist group, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, has filed a formal complaint with the state of Texas stating that Kemp's actions overstepped judicial authority. And this is the point, really. Can we not appreciate this gesture for what it is? A flower finding a way to bloom in this hard sidewalk of our society. We are so harsh to one another. Leaders in D.C. shouting. People on the airwaves shouting. Motorists in traffic shouting. People on social media shouting. Anger seems to be the order of the day. Then when a person models an act of kindness, we recoil. We accuse her of proselytizing. When we should welcome her compassion. And with that we say, listen. Your lives are under a microscope. this should not be a bad thing. This is a good thing, Christian. This is a good thing, witness. Let's pray right now. Just bow our heads for a moment. Father, we just do pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, with your word in hand, that we would again be empowered as we leave here today if we have forgotten for any reason who we are, children of God, What our calling is to make you known. That no matter where it is we find ourselves, you're aware of it. You're using it. And we pray, Father, to get out of the way so that you could flow freely through us so that the world sees you. You're the one the world needs. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.